podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This World Cup and now this is Lloyd Williams charging for all he's worth. Oh, it might work for Wales. They're going to score under the post. And it's Gareth Davis who's been one of the stars. Hello, welcome to an Attacking Scrum podcast. It is our final episode of the Rugby World Cup, uh, a Rugby World Cup that I've thoroughly enjoyed following. It's taken a fair bit out of me producing all these podcasts and it's taken a fair bit out of the team around me as well because I seem to be the last man standing. No Yestin, no Dan, no Murph, no James, no Paul Reese, nobody around to record this evening. So instead you have the pleasure slash misery of me doing one on my own for this episode which uh, is always hell and so much harder to do but I hope it's not hell for you uh, as the listener so yeah stick with me for the next uh, 40 45 minutes or so and hopefully we'll manage to get through it Uh, and luckily we've got a huge amount of amazing Rugby World Cup to look back on. Uh, I don't know about you, but I thoroughly enjoyed the whole tournament. Uh, So this one is going to be concentrating solely on Rugby World Cup. We may have uh, some domestic stuff to cover later on in the week. Uh, I'm not sure yet whether I get time to do that or not. Uh, And may even be going to the the Harlequins-Ospreys game on Friday as well. So uh, yeah, stay tuned for all that. As I always say, if you subscribe to us or if you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you normally listen to your podcast that way you'll get notified so whatever happens you won't miss out on uh, on your attacking scrum fix and who knows maybe there'll be someone else around to chat rugby with me as well so yeah fingers crossed for that but we do have the small matter of the rugby world cup to look back on so in this episode what are we going to be talking about we are going to review the final uh, and all the thrills and spills that came with that and saw south africa Winning back-to-back World Cups, the first team to win it four times, which is pretty astonishing, considering that uh, they missed out on the first. They missed the first two anyway. So yeah, it's amazing achievement, really. Um, Whether or not you like the style of rugby that South Africa have played with, and uh, perhaps the gamesmanship that goes alongside it, we'll get into all of that, and uh, of course the red cards and uh, the the big performances that, that went alongside that as well. Uh, we're going to be reviewing the tournament, so you may remember if you listened to our preview episode, we did things like predicting, uh, not just predicting who the winner was going to be, but breakthrough players and player of the tournament, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll be kind of wrapping up by looking back on those things and answering those questions. Uh, we'll also, I say we, it's me, uh, I'll also be picking uh, my team of the tournament and I've decided that this is going to be a mixture of the best players, some who've overachieved, and quite simply just some of my favourites because there's no one here to disagree with me. So, you know, why why bother uh, why bother doing it any other way? So that will be coming up as well. And then what else have we got to talk about? We've also got uh, well big changes ahead. The the when the next time around the Rugby World Cup will have 24 teams, so that's going to be bigger changing format that, uh, for that tournament. And there's also going to be a new tournament introduced uh, into uh, yeah into the international calendar, which uh, was news that broke I think the day after we recorded last week. So it would have been really great to get um, to get Paul Reese's take on that. But uh, yeah, we'll hopefully be able to do that uh, another time 
But yeah, all of that to get through. So lots to chat about. Well, we start with a review of the final. And I th- really thoroughly enjoyed this. I know I think there'll be people out there, and I've heard a few other podcasts say that, you know, the, the rugby was very stop-start and it was tipping it down in the rain. But I think it all depends what you hope to get out of a final. And in my experience, finals are often either dull or one-sided. I'm trying to have a think back to... So last time around, I mean, as much as I enjoyed South Africa thumping England in 2019, it wasn't much of a contest. It was very, very one-sided. You knew pretty early on who was going to win that. What happened the time before? Australia were, were quite comprehensively beaten by New Zealand, uh, you know, a quality New Zealand side. And yes, they played some amazing rugby in that final. Brilliant performance from Dan Carter. And But it was also, you know, as a, as a contest, wasn't um, wasn't an amazing spectacle. I mean, 2011 was very very close um but it was pretty grim in terms of the, the quality of rugby uh seven was a really dull final south africa edging out england uh oh three i mean this this is the one that, that i suppose compares best really because that was a and i can say this 20 years on i didn't enjoy it much of the time but that was a brilliant final in terms of both um, excitement but also some real moments of quality in there as well you know I think if you look at the tries of Takiri and particularly Jason Robinson you know the the break from Matt Dawson to set up the drop goal the fact that Wilkinson slots it in extra time off his wrong foot you know real moments of quality but it also went down to the wire so you know that for me I think is the is probably the best World Cup final that, that I've seen but this one runs it really really close Um and then going back prior to, to 2003, 99 was very one-sided. 95 was very turgid affair. Yes, it went down to the wire, but I suppose we were hoping to see a bit more from uh, from from Lomu and the rest of the the All Blacks during that game. And South Africa just did a number on them defensively. Uh, 91, I don't really remember, but um, but again, I don't think it was was a huge amount to look at. And 87 was a comfortable win for New Zealand. So. After that potted history, to me, yeah, it's the it's the 03 and the and the 23 finals that I think have been the best in terms of in terms of overall drama and uh, and and bits of quality in there as well. Because for all of the the controversy around this final, there was lot there was lots to like about it as well. And I think the the kind of the hot feet of Mark Talea breaking through. You think the um, the brilliant try that, that New Zealand scored. It had the drama of the sending off. And again, whether you like red cards or you don't, there's no denying that it adds that it adds drama. And it went right right down to the wire. You know, it went right down to that final scrum. Geordie Barrett had a kick to win it. So I really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, I think generally finals are, are not hugely entertaining affairs and, and this one was for me. So yeah, for me I would say it's it's probably the second best rugby world cup final. Uh, and yeah really really enjoyed it obviously we've got to talk about the red card so Sam Kane sent off and I think that you know again if you've listened to this podcast before you'll know kind of what my thoughts are on high shots and I tend to be of the opinion that I'd just like to see less grey areas so in this game you've got two I guess similar you know you well you've got two instances where Wayne Barnes has issued yellow cards and then sent it off to the bunker to be reviewed. Sam Keynes was upgraded to a red card. Sia Khaleesi's was uh, was held at a yellow as well. Now, I can see why Khaleesi's was a yellow. His contact, you know, he, he goes for a a, a shot that, that rides up and it starts with 
him going with his shoulder and then it rides up and, and hits head-on-head -head contact. Whereas the, the Sam Kane one, there's very little mitigation. I mean, for me, I would quite happily see them both as red cards. If if you're serious about driving change, I've said this before, You know, there has to be less grey areas. I feel like in the last couple of years, referees have just been looking for mitigation. And if I'm honest, I don't... You know, I don't really buy into this into this narrative that red cards ruin games. I think if you look at that game, South Africa were comfortably the better side prior to the red card, and it, it seemed to galvanise New Zealand. They actually came back and realised they had to find something else, they had to dig deeper, they had to go really, really deep and, and completely change the game plan, and it almost paid off. Yes, it didn't in the end, but... The fact that they ran it so close, it made for a much more interesting final, to be honest. And so, the, first and foremost, the most important thing is the player welfare. And I still think we're a long way from getting satisfactory protection for players and satisfactory enjoyment for fans where it's clear and easy to understand. Because again, that will be another one where people will be sat around the telly and not just rugby novices either, people who play the game and stuff and go, well, what's the, what's the difference with that? And there's just, you know, in a world where there is very little nuance, and particularly if you go on social media after the game, in a world where there's very little nuance, I think there is too much nuance around uh, around the, these headshots. I just think it needs we need to take away an element of the of the subjectiveness and turn it into something that actually it becomes very very clear cut. Now, I don't see that happening in terms of. The onus being on the players, so I think the player, I think eventually the tackle height will will come down, and you know perhaps that's maybe what should have happened all along, but we'll see. Um, but in terms of what it meant for the final, you know you have to feel sorry for for Sam. Well, you don't have to, but I I do feel sorry for Sam Kane, particularly after he's taken you know taken a huge amount of stick in recent years, largely because he's not Richie McCaw, which very few players are. You know, I'm not entirely convinced he's New Zealand's best open size. I thought Papali in previous you know, previous competitions and uh, particularly last autumn was hugely impressive but at the same time Sam Kane really showed up in that quarter final against against Ireland particularly you know against a few players who'd uh, you know Peter Omani in particular who'd dished out a bit of stick to him so I do feel for him because that is what his World Cup is going to be remembered for being sent off in the final and so yeah you know, have to feel a, a degree of sympathy there but at the same time, as I say, it it changed the whole dynamic of the game for the better, in my opinion. And a, a bit like the some of the performances you've seen from England in, in recent years when they keep getting players sent off. And for some reason it just seems to it seems to galvanise them. They come out and they play better, you know, whether that's against Ireland uh, in the, the Grand Slam deciding game, whether it's against Argentina in this in this Rugby World Cup. And as a result, you know, I think we ended up with a with a really entertaining final. You never know, you know, what would have happened if he'd have stayed on. But um, yeah, you know, in terms of the yeah, in terms of the dynamic of the final, I think it, it did make for a really interesting one. And you've got the disallowed try. I mean, it, there's always going to be officiating decisions, and that's the nature of the game is that things are going to be disputed. I thought generally Wayne Barnes did well on keeping a lid on it. You know, and he is the best referee in the world, in my opinion. But there's some real frustration in that game I think you know the disallowed try that just does nothing for rugby if you're going back several if not several phases you know you're going back considerable amount of gameplay to to go back and and see what was a clear knock-on at the uh, at the line out but I just don't understand why the 
why they touched us didn't see it first off you know i know they they, they make errors the human but it's hugely frustrating when it's the final, it's the real showpiece event of the whole tournament and you get a brilliant moment of genius like that that gets hauled back for a, for an infringement that really should have been spotted. You know, it was clear as day, it was knocked on. I think most people sat at home saw that um, saw that in, in real time and I don't really understand why the officials didn't pick it up straight away. So yes, it's the right decision, but again, for me, it raises bigger questions about how we use the TMO and what you want to use it for. I mean, I think using it less is 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 ideal, particularly when it comes to when it comes to grounding and and things like that. That's where I'd like to see it used. Something that's the immediate act before a try is scored, and so that plus plus serious foul play, because otherwise, you know, you could you could always go back and find something in the in the lead up to it which, which chalks off the moment of drama. So, yes, you want the right decisions, but also we've got to realise that there are big problems facing the game that we love and how you attract a, a younger audience so there there is a real danger that the TMO can become the joy killer that sometimes VAR is in the Premier League so yeah that was that was a frustrating thing as well particularly because it was such a it was such a brilliant try the the, the disallowed one from from Aaron Smith but all in all a brilliant final I think you've got to say a huge tip of the cap to uh, to Andre Pollard uh, I mean, his first kick was a bit shaky. He just clipped in off the post. If that clips the other way, then or bounces straight out, then he might have had a different result. But it shows how important uh, goal goal kicks are, and having a goal kicker is. We said earlier on in the tournament, it cost them against Ireland. I think that's why you just have to have Pollard on the pitch in the in the final, and he and he paid that back by uh, by slotting all those penalty goals and. I think you could question New Zealand's decision making at a point where they're down to 15 and have kickable penalties to go for the corner, particularly when their line out had failed in the first half of the game. It got better as the game went on, but it's. Uh, I think you you do look back at those decisions and say, well, take the points and, and keep the scoreboard ticking over. I think if that's in a rugby championship game, it's completely different. But the stakes are so high in Rugby World Cup finals and, and semi-finals that points are at a massive premium, especially on a rainy night like that. So I do think you have to you have to look back at that. And I don't know whose decision that would have been, whether it's come on from from Foster and the, his coaching team up in the stands or it's one that, uh, that Ardi Surveyor has made as, as captain at that point. But yeah, I think you look back at that. I look back at that in the same way that I look back at the Dragons the week before not taking the points against Edinburgh when they're an offer. You've got to take them. And in the Dragons' case, it's because we don't score very many tries. In the case of New Zealand, it's because it's a Rugby World Cup final and the stakes are so high, you've just got to take the points when they're on offer. So, yeah, I think uh, there's a few a few of those things to look back at. But, yeah, all in all, cracking World Cup final. Thoroughly enjoyed it. A word for Sir Khaleesi as well, captaining the side, back-to-back World Cups. You know, we... We had a podcast that we did with James Stafford at the start of the tournament where we looked at rugby role models, uh, rebels and uh, and giant killers and Khaleesi obviously in there as, uh, as a kind of, as a role model figure and he is hugely impressive as a captain, I think that has to be said. His, his story off the pitch is, is incredible but what he does as a captain I think is is really, really impressive and yeah, to to win back-to-back World Cups and and lift that trophy on two occasions is uh, is a massive achievement and you know he's going to go down in rugby world cup folklore for for what he's achieved so 
uh, you know, massive uh, a massive congratulations to him. Just a final point on South Africa's style of play. I mean, you know, being completely honest, I didn't want South Africa to win it. I think the the kind of the gamesmanship and the you know the traffic lights and the doctors coming on delivering team orders, the questionable use of HIAs in the in the knockout games, none of that sits particularly well with me. I don't like Razi Erasmus's approach to stirring things up as he did during the Lions tour and. You know, the way that he criticises referees, I think, is deliberately with a view to stirring up social media frenzy, and none of that stuff I like. But at the same time, it doesn't make you any less of a deserving winner. You know, again, I heard Stephen Jones on the on the Times podcast kind of saying they didn't deserve to win it, and and you do if you take your points, you deserve to win it. I, I kind of don't really buy into this argument of deserving or not deserving because ultimately you get the opportunities, and whether you take them or not is is entirely up to you. You know, there's there's no one really to to blame from New Zealand other than themselves, and I'm fairly certain they won't be in that dressing room. They won't be doing doing any of that. I think they'll be looking at themselves and thinking, well, how could we have won that? And so, you know, by the same token, you have to say hats off to South Africa for for doing it. You know, they found a way in by by winning by a point in in all the knockout games, and it doesn't matter whether it's a point or it's or it's fifty points. And you know, a win is a win, and and they they get to keep the trophy. They're not my favourite side to watch, but they've got some brilliant players, and you can't question their ability as a team and the the fact that they're just winners. And you know that that you've kind of you've got to respect. So, you know, a big congratulations to them. And uh, yeah, just a word on the tournament as a whole. I think it's it, it might be the the best World Cup I've witnessed. I think um, again, looking back, it would have been yeah, it'd been lovely for Wales to get to a semi final and to go further. But I think this was just incredible. We're gonna, I'm gonna have a look at this later on in the show. But the quality of the games, the tension, the drama. Yes, there were, you know, there were some one-sided games, and particularly the likes of the likes of Italy getting humbled was was perhaps not what you'd want in terms of competitiveness. But that quarter-final weekend will live long in the memory. Has never been one like it. That semi-final between England and South Africa was incredible. The final was tense, and some of those pool stage games as well as much has been made about the this lopsided draw i think it's made for uh, it's made for a much more interesting tournament and you could argue that i'm only saying that because i'm a wales fan and we're on the easy side of the draw but uh you know i think that's life i think that's that's the fact that there are there are good teams out there and and yes they've ended up on on one side of the draw i think too much has been made of that and at the end of the day we've ended up with a really good with a really good quality tournament with some meaningful pool games and it's just led to an incredible set of quarterfinals whereas in the past you could probably have predicted them quite easily and you get the odd upset on the way but I just think it's made for it's made for a really really good tournament and I'll be intrigued to see what the the 24 team version ends up like in uh, in four years time but we'll get onto that later in the show uh, but in the meantime uh, we're going to take a quick break because I'm 18 minutes in and I'm sweating. My voice is running out already. And uh, you know, if you want to take a break as well, then yeah, go and um, go and grab yourself a cup of coffee. And uh, we'll see you after this very quick interlude. Right into the second part of the show. Uh, now, this part I'm going to do is a review of the tournament. So I listened back earlier, because that's how sad I am, 
to our preview episode that me and the Mighty Murph did back in September, where we tried to predict the winners, uh, dark horses, underachievers. I can't remember who did dark horses now, actually. I only listened back to it today. Uh, but I am going to talk about dark horses. We talk about um, underachievers, uh, the most anticipated game, and yeah, top tries, all that kind of stuff. So what I'm going to do now is go through and award those things retrospectively uh, rather than, uh, than our predictions. You will remember, of course, that Murph completely wrote off New Zealand and they came within a whisker of winning it but uh, I suppose he was right all in all uh, but yeah in terms of winners as I said there South Africa you know said in the first half of the show I think they're deserving winners anyone who can go through that tougher run of fixtures win it from the hard side of, of the pool you know hats off to you for for doing that um, so yeah you know a brilliant side so I'm going to move on straight away to, to dark horses and I think this is really interesting because I think it's about you know it's about overachieving and I feel like Wales could have been in this bracket but you have to look at it through the lens of of losing a quarterfinal that I really think we should have won and we played really well in the pools I thought you know yes that they perhaps weren't complete 80 minute performances but we got the job done and it was a tough pool you know there's no as much as so much has been made about the lopsided draw that wasn't an easy pool to get out of. Fiji are the best Fiji side that, that we've seen to date, and they deservedly got out of the pool. Australia are still Australia, and they, they were humbled, and they were terrible. Don't get me wrong, they were terrible, and Eddie Jones has got to pick up a lot of the the slack for that and you know won't be continuing as, uh, as Australia coach. But they were still humbled by Wales in that game because Wales were a really functioning team that played really well on the day executed their game plan brilliantly and Australia didn't know what to do and they panicked and Wales's defence was great and they took their chances, they kept the scoreboard ticking over and they were really really good so Wales deserved the credit for for getting for playing that well in the pool stages I think you know the, the slight stumbles against Portugal who we've subsequently learned are a really really good team and can cause upsets and perhaps the, you know, the, the odd stutter against Georgia as well uh, I think you know, it's all put into context because we topped the pool and got bonus points and everything else. So, I think a lot to be has to be said about how well Wales played in the in the pool stages. I, I thought that couldn't have gone much better, which is why it's frustrating that we didn't get over the line against Argentina in a game that we had done enough to close, or we should have been able to close off from the position we were in. And obviously, we, we've mentioned that. So, uh, so I would have liked to have seen Wales in this dark horses category, but I think I suppose quarterfinals is, is probably about par. For um for where we'd like to be and hopefully there'll be more to come. So dark horses, dark, you can't look past Portugal. Uh, you know I didn't necessarily know a huge amount about Portugal coming into this. Anyone who listens to, to us and also watches the likes of Squidge Rugby will have probably known a lot more than I did. But they were hugely impressive and not just the not just the results, the way they played, the caliber of the players they've got. I was so so impressed, and the style of play is just—they're so much fun to watch. There is—they're such an attack-minded team, but they have the—they have the skill set to pull it off. And with a team that has no, had no real stars in it uh, coming into the tournament, there'll be a hell of a lot of players within there who'll be looking for, uh, or who'll be snapped up by by bigger clubs in probably in France. Uh, but they were—they were absolutely superb, Portugal, and, and to to get so close against Georgia and it would have been very easy to look at that and think well that was 
that was a missed opportunity. But to then bounce back and beat Fiji is absolutely incredible. Uh, so that that was a massive achievement. But yeah, Fiji, I don't know whether they're dark horses or not. I think they they performed really well. Look, they they got their moment in the sun because they they gave a a, a really good performance against Australia. They got over the line. They got it done. Uh, they came very, very close to beating Wales. They played all their best rugby, I think, at the start of the tournament. And then they almost managed to turn England over in the quarters as well when it looked as though they'd been running out of puff. So, yeah, I suppose they're not really dark horses anymore. Um, England, on the other hand, you know, I think I think you have to say that they, they were kind of dark horses. Getting to the semi-finals was probably about where they should have, what they should have done. They had a, I would say the easiest pool in, in Rugby World Cup history and credit where it's due they completely outplayed Argentina even with 14 men on that first night they just found a way and again it's not the most attractive rugby in the world but drop goal drop goal drop goal it did the job and you know and that set them up it set them up for the rest of it the rest of the the rest of the time I, I wasn't hugely impressed with the way they played I thought they were very poor against Japan basic skills weren't there uh, against Samoa, they probably should have lost that if the refereeing decisions were correct, but they didn't, and they they ground their way through that. They're already through at this point. Obviously, Chile is Chile, you know, a, a fun side to watch, but they're still a long way away from being competitive against a side like England. They just about got over the line against Fiji. Obviously, they saved their performance for for the semi final, and they came so so close. So I think you have to mention them in the dark horses spot because to get to a final, even someone who's been largely unimpressed by this England side like me would have said hats off that's you know there's there's no there's no fluking to the final you know I, I think we've seen relatively inconsistent sides in the past like England in 07 like France in 11 get to finals but that you still have to recognize the achievement of of getting there uh, in the first place and to beat this South African side who went on to win it that would have been a huge uh, that would have been a huge achievement but i am going to give it to to portugal i think there's there's no denying that in playing only their second world cup to come away with a win and a draw is absolutely massive and it's a complete crime that they're just going to be starved of rugby for the next uh, for the next few years and you know you <laughs> i was going to say i call upon other unions as if they'd listen to me but there has there has to be a look at at what world rugby are trying to do are they serious about creating a, a tournament where there are more teams and more opportunities for developing nations? And if they are, you've got to give them the opportunities within there. There's a lot that has to be done in order to make uh, to make sides more competitive. And this is why this Rugby World Cup for me has been so good, is it's been so hard to predict. And there was no outstanding one team who were out and out favourites for it. You could have picked it. You could have picked any one of four sides who were all on the same side of the draw, and and made a, a hugely compelling case for them. So, for me, if you want tournaments to be to be competitive, you've got to give those sides, um, you've got to give them opportunity against uh, against the the leading nations. That you know that will give them commercial opportunity as well as as well as an opportunity to play against the best sides. And you know underneath that, there's got to be some kind of some kind of league structure you know some kind of domestic structure that, that gives them an opportunity to play on a you know on a 
on a regular basis i think that would that that keeps the interest it stimulates the interest at, um, at a local level from a fan base perspective as well so i really hope portugal can get that stuff together because it doesn't look like world rugby are going to give them a huge amount of help in doing that and uh, you know who knows maybe some of the unions will will take them on given what a you know what an exciting side they've been to watch i would hope that that, that will be the case but we uh, we wait and see so uh, yeah they they get the 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 nod as the best dark horses of the tournament for me and again word for uruguay in a, in a similar breath too because they did uh, they punched um, admirably above their weight so yeah the more uruguay and portugal stories we can get out there the better the tournaments will be going forward underachievers so i mean look you can't there's, there's two really in this bracket for me yes namibia took some hammerings and romania took some hammerings i don't think that was unexpected they're they're a long way away from from being the size that they were in the past, to be honest, particularly in Romania's case. And Romania shouldn't really have been there. Well, not that they shouldn't have been there, but Romania were there because of a technicality and Spain fielding an ineligible player. So you can kind of understand why they, they took a few towelings. Italy, I think, was really worrying. You know, a side that's been in the Six Nations for 20-odd years to be handed out, you know, almost 100 points. Yes, it was against New Zealand, but you shouldn't be losing by that much. And then, you know, another toweling the following week from France. It just isn't good enough from, from Italy. Uh, the, the player base they've got, you know, they've got that kind of, that development of talent right, it seems. Their under-20s have been very, very impressive in recent seasons. They had that win against Wales in, uh, whenever that was, 2022. And you thought things were kind of on the right path. Crowley is a, a coach who I really rate, and I thought he did an excellent job at, at uh, Benetton before that but it looks as though the wheels just came completely off during the World Cup so they have to be mentioned in that in that bracket but the biggest underachievers there's no denying it's uh, it's Australia I mean I've, I've never seen a straight Australian sporting side like it I don't think they there is something about the Australian psyche whether it's cricket whether it's rugby obviously rugby league they're incredibly good at um, or even things even things like football there is something in the or Olympics. There is something that Australians, as you know, as a as a nation and as as a set of people, just are incredibly competitive and and never really let the side down. Even if they don't, even if they don't win, it's not often you see Australians humbled at major sporting events. And this is the weakest Australian performance I've ever seen in rugby. You know, the the, the one against Wales in particular, they were just so so poor and. There's a few things to point out. Firstly, Eddie Jones, as I mentioned before, you know he deserves to take a huge amount of criticism for this. He's, you know, the the way that he handled some of his more experienced players. I'm not saying things would have been rosy if uh, if Hooper and Foley and those kind of players were in the mix, uh, but they weren't treated with a huge amount of respect. And then having backed, um, you know, having backed a, a rookie ten to then take him out of the firing line and. Uh, and bringing Donaldson at 10 it just it smacked of someone who was kind of playing a bit of a guessing game and all the talk to be about oh yeah we're, we're uh, you know we're planning for the Lions and the, and the World Cup in four years time it's just you know it's it's pretty uh, I, th- I think the the world has perhaps run out of or the rugby world has run out of patience with Eddie's kind of antics and it, it all looks a bit dated now to me so he has to take a, a large amount of that criticism but alongside that they're a deep oh and uh, the uh, the Australian authorities for for going out of their way to appoint him as well you know I think you have to look at the 
the appointment in the first place. The sacking of Dave Rennie. Yeah, I've said it, but I've said this before. I thought they were moving in the right direction when they came over in autumn 2022. Uh, they almost beat they almost beat France in France, and they gave a good account of themselves against Ireland. And you could just for the first time really see what Dave Rennie was trying to do with the team. And he's an excellent coach. And to then kind of chuck all that away just because Eddie was available, I thought was a, a huge mistake. And you know, and, and kind of so it's so it's proven. And there has to be some some ramifications for that, you know, amongst the uh, the Australian um, Australia Rugby Authority, because they yeah they they just made a monumental balls up, and what that would have meant commercially as well, you know, having to pay off, um, having to pay off uh, Rennie and his his coaching team to then pick up, you know, to then go and, and pick up Eddie and. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a bit of a joke, really. And uh, yeah, Hamish McLennan, the, the chairman, kind of went all out to, to get Eddie in. And realistically, he you know he deserves to um, he needs to have a real look at his at his future as well because I think he's culpable in that appointment. And outside of that, you've got to look at the big problems that Australia is facing. The fact that Australia has been such a great rugby nation over the years, a lot of that domestic success. Um, and the, the production of players has been built on having a strong Wallaby side and as a as a figurehead, uh, you know something that kind of shines a light on, on the sport in Australia because in terms of popularity, cricket, Aussie rules, rugby league, they're all sports that are, um, that are, historically much more popular, and you know, it's, uh, I suppose as funny as it is, from a rivalry point of view, watching Australia struggle sometimes. It's actually not, you know, the, the game needs a strong Australia. It, it does, and there are some deep-rooted problems with the sport in the country, and they're going to have to address those over the course, you know, over the next few years. And and these aren't new problems either, you know. I think you can kind of go back 10 years to, to take a look at the financial problems, and, um, of course, COVID has exacerbated those things, but rugby in Australia is not in good nick, and, uh, you know, we're, we're a small sport. We've got to remember that, and if you're serious about growing the game, you can't really have... Uh, major nations like that, major nations in terms of player base, in terms of fame, in terms of the commercial pull, you kind of need Australia to be uh, to be better than this. There's a Lions tour out there in two years' time, and uh, I mean, at the moment, you'd have to say the Lions would go in insanely hot favourites for that uh, to the point where it wouldn't even be a contest. But things can change in that in that uh, course of time, so be intrigued to see who Australia appoint as uh, as head coach but yeah there's a lot a lot for them to do so they I think they have to take the underachievers tag for the uh, for the tournament now in our preview episode me and Murph talked about the most anticipated game and we both kind of settled on the opening fixture New Zealand versus France which in reality you know as an occasion was excellent uh, I still maintain that on paper it's the best opening fixture we've ever seen of a Rugby World Cup but in the end France were kind of comfortable winners it was a great start from New Zealand but France were kind of comfortable winners in that one and then what followed you know yes there were some one-sided games and there were a few dud games in there but there were so many brilliant games and by brilliant games I mean all-time all-time best test matches that I've ever seen Ireland South Africa has to be right there in amongst it then you've got the shocks of Fiji Portugal. Uh, as I said, Fiji Georgia. Uh, sorry, Georgia Portugal was a brilliant game as well. Japan Argentina. Wales versus Fiji was a brilliant game. You know, um, could very easily have uh, have lost that. 
had the pass gone to hand and they kicked the conversion. Uh, but then the, the quarterfinal weekend, you know, never seen. I've never seen anything like it. It's for all quarterfinals to to go to the wire. In the end, Argentina were the most comfortable winners that weekend. And then yeah, South Africa and uh, and France doing battle. Uh, and then New Zealand Ireland, which is one of the most incredible games I've ever seen. As we said when we reviewed it, players at a standstill at the end of that game because they were so exhausted, uh, despite being the fittest athletes um, playing the game, was just a, a, an incredible thing to watch. Following weekend, you end up with one very lopsided semi-final, but England almost causing one of you know a huge World Cup upset. So, and then the final itself did the job. So there's been so many brilliant ones, but. I think for oh God, this is close. Um, it's either Ireland, South Africa, or France, South Africa. I'm going to go for Ireland, South Africa as the best one, just because I think at that point in time, that kind of feels like when perhaps the the World Cup peaked for me, and uh, it was uh, yeah, it was incredible. And you had that brilliant zombie moment at the end of the at the end of the game. That I absolutely loved. Uh, top try scorer Will Jordan. I mean, there's no there's no dispute in that fact. Uh, did the job would have been one more if Richie Mwanga had put him in, put him in in the uh, dying stages of the semi-final as well. But a brilliant winger and someone I'm sure we'll be featuring when it comes down to picking the team of the tournament, player of the tournament. Um, I mean, it's really tough. There've been so many brilliant, um, so many brilliant uh, performances throughout that time. I mean, I'm kind of torn between Aben Etzebet, Ardi Savea, Peter Steff Detroit for his his performance in the final um, I, mean, I, th- I think Espets had such a big impact in, in so many games there was a couple where he came off and you know, there was the yellow card incident in the, uh, the quarter final as well but he also you know, the defining moment in the quarter final so I'm, g- I'm going to go for Espets I think he just you know Southampton have so much depth at second row and they just seem to, to the point where they pick a bench you know, full of forwards uh, but he just seems to get better and better, and he's just a phenomenal, you know, freak of a of an athlete, and and uh, a hugely important player to them. And I think he, yeah, he was uh, uh, absolutely essential in them getting to the getting to the final and, and winning it. So I'm going to go for I'm going to go for Aben Etzebet for that one. And Alitre has picked up the World Player of the Year um, either today or yesterday, whenever it was. Um, and yeah, he's been he's been absolutely superb as well. But Etzebet gets the the nod for me. Uh, best Welsh player. Now there's been a few who really kind of caught the eye. As you'll know, I've always kind of found Nick Tompkins a, a frustrating player to watch, but there's no denying how important he has been for Wales during the during this this campaign. So yeah, massive um, massive tip of the cap to him. Uh, outside of that, Will Rowlands was excellent. I think Adam Beard deserves some credit because he's again not the most fashionable player, but he put in some big shifts um, and. Again, that suddenly that position looks a lot stronger now with Dav Jenkins, uh, again producing some excellent cameos. Um, I think it's got to be Jack Morgan though for me. Just, uh, I, I think you know we're we're about to witness something special, and he is like the the figurehead of that of that side in the same way. I know I've said this a lot before, but in the same way that Warburton was in eleven, he's a real lead by example captain, and I think he's he's just got so much about him. Uh, I think he's going to be hugely important to us and again it's a position that we're blessed in having loads of sevens but I just think he's that much the best seven there and I love Tommy Raffle as well I think he's an absolute animal and uh, you know there could be a horses for courses argument on the odd occasion but having them both in the match day squad I think is a huge advantage um, 
but I think Morgan is going to be a is going to be a, a player for the ages for for Wales. So I'm going to go for him as the as the best Welsh player. Um, oh, also just quickly before I move on, uh, another mention for Gareth Davis as well, who looked like a a player reborn as did Tom Francis. So um, and Gar Thomas as well. So some pretty some brilliant um, yeah some brilliant individual performances in there, which I hope will uh, will mean. Um, that there's uh, there's something to build on in the Six Nations, which is which is going to be a tricky one given the the retirements and stuff as well. Um, right, final part before I take another break, and this was breakthrough players, which is always one of my favourite things. Just to remind you, uh, Murph predicted that uh, it'd be Manny Leboc and, and Kane and Moody. Uh, Moody didn't get didn't get that much game time actually, which um, was a little bit frustrating. Uh, considering he's such a, a fun player to watch, but also his testament to how well Jesse Creel played throughout the whole tournament. Um, Leboc obviously had uh, his, his ways off the kicking tee, but also produced some moments of absolute brilliance too. Uh, none more so than that no-look kick for uh, for Arense in the, the game against Scotland. Um, so that, that was a decent shout, Murph. Um, the other players, um, so I picked, again, this is not, I was hardly going out on a limb, but I picked Mark Talea, who I think is, uh, yeah, who was absolutely superb in this tournament. But um, more importantly, there were lots of players who I'd not come across before or not seen a lot of before who you know really stood out. Uh, Manuel Ardau, the, the Uruguayan flanker, was absolutely superb. I think he's gone to play in MLR, but uh, there'll be some sides in Europe kicking themselves they didn't get hold of him because he's an absolute animal at the breakdown. Uh, Sousa Guedes, uh, the has quite a few, has quite a few Portuguese players. Uh, Sousa Guedes, Martins, um, uh, Stortins, the winger, some brilliant players there. Obviously, I've waxed lyrical about Portugal already, but they were they were superb. Uh, and Ben Earl of England too. I think you know, look, I've, as I say, I've been a bit critical of this England side, but I think Earl's been the one player who's been consistently brilliant for them. I think he's absolutely excellent at eight. It's I'm astonished that he didn't. Yeah, that he hasn't had that shirt his own for a for a while. He's just so explosive. He carries well. He's brilliant over the um, over the ball as well. So you know, so athletic. I think he's got a you know got a hugely bright future ahead of him for um for England. And uh, yeah, yeah, his performances were absolutely superb. So breakthrough player. Who do we give this to? Who do we give this to? Ah, oh, bugger it. I'm gonna stick with Mark Teller. Why not? Um, again, there's no one else here, so I'm I'm just gonna do it. Uh, right, one more quick break, and then when uh, I come back, I'm going to take a look at uh, Team of the Tournament. Final part of the show, final part of the Attacking Scrum Rugby World Cup editions, and uh, there's not a huge amount left more to do other than to select the team of the tournament. Uh, so as I said in the intro to the show, this is going to be a mixture of the best, some players who are overachievers, and I'm just going to put in some of the players who I've really enjoyed watching as well because, uh, yeah, let's face it, it's, it's fun, isn't it? So um, I'm going to start in the forwards, obviously, and for me, actually, this is probably one of the easiest positions to pick in loose head prop. Uh, so some honourable mentions for... I, I thought Angus Bell was on a few kind of Australian players to... To come away with uh, with some some credit, you know, he kind of lived up to the billing uh, in, in with his performances. Uh, Joe Marler actually, I thought was excellent for England, particularly in the uh, not just for his um, for his header assist in the uh, in the Japan game, 
but his performance against South Africa was absolutely superb. Everything kind of fell apart after after that, but when the when the the subs came on, but I thought him and Dan Cole, you know, two veteran props did a, a huge number on the uh, not did a huge number, but gave a a huge performance in a game um, of that magnitude. So I think he he deserves a mention, but. In that same game, you just saw the importance of Ox and Che, who again is a player we've watched for for years in the in the URC and the Pro 14 before that, and he was so destructive. It was coming on and winning games, that semi final in particular, but also the final. I think you know the uh, the number one shirt for for this team is the player who wore um, who wore 17 throughout most of it. But yeah, absolute uh, absolute animal, and uh, yeah. A, a, brilliant player I mean, you've got to be brilliant to have a, a nickname like Ox haven't you so uh, so yeah he uh, he walks into that number one shirt uh, right hookers um, again a few honourable mentions uh, Malvaca I thought did an absolutely amazing job for France kind of coming in as into the tournament as, as the second choice hooker and then taking over from Marchand and you know filling that void brilliantly I thought he was absolutely superb and Bonambe uh I mean, you, you, yeah, you have to, you have to credit those performances. He's, a, we know he's a class individual. He's an absolute brilliant player, and I think particularly when he then became the the sole specialist hooker in the side, that puts even more pressure on him. And uh, and again, that almost cost them in the final. You know, for all of uh, Razi Erasmus's arsing around with traffic lights and naming seven on the bench and all these kind of things that um, that he's trying to do to to show innovation. Uh, you know, he could have just picked a, uh, another specialist hooker in the squad instead of taking four um, instead of taking four scrum halves. So you know that very nearly cost them because the lineout did not go well, and I think it showed that Furry was not a um, you know kind of not a specialist hooker and someone who flitted between hooker and uh, and back row throughout his career and and sevens as well, I think. But uh, yeah, Suen Banambe definitely deserves a mention. But the man who's getting the nod uh, is quite simply. Mike Tadger because uh, he's been brilliant. He looks great. He's got a massive beard. He's bald. His performances were amazing. Uh, hats off for that try that he scored against Wales. And his name's Tadger. So if you think there's any way I'm not putting Tadger in the side, uh, you're wrong. Um, so yes, appealing to the to the juvenile um, amongst the, amongst our listeners. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It just again it falls into that bracket of one of the players I've really enjoyed watching this time around, and he's a veteran as well. So. So yeah, get in there, Tadger. He takes the hooker shirt. Uh, tight head prop. Quite a few, uh, quite a few big performances in there from you know, players who uh, kind of caught my eye. Uh, yeah, obviously you've got Mal Herb, who's you know done a done a big shift there. As I said, I think Tom France. I think I said this. I think Tom Francis looked like a, a rejuvenated player this tournament. Uh, ben Tamafuna, uh, Tonga. You know, just brilliant, particularly in that game against South Africa. That was absolutely superb, and then um, Luke Tangy, uh, the uh, Fijian tight head, and I think I'm going to go for Tangy because it's just um, that's what I think made this Fiji side so different from ones in the past was the set piece, and at times the lineout didn't quite function, but their um, the scrum was kind of solid throughout, and I think he's you know, he's a big part of that. So uh, so yeah, he get he gets the nod there, and um, again yeah, just part of a. Fiji side that has been, uh, yeah, has has been great. As I say, I think they they dropped off at certain points during the tournament, but um, 
yeah, he was one of those players I thought was, was consistent and, and very, very impressive throughout. Into the locks then. Yeah, quick sip of water and a quick bit of breath um, uh, as we come towards the end of this show. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if it's fe- if it feels like it's a long time for you listening, but um, these forty-seven minutes have felt like uh, have felt like about four and a half hours for me. Um, so uh, second rows, uh, as I said, look, Etzebet has to be in there for me. But again, a big shout for for Tyke Burn. I just think the guy is absolute class, and uh, uh, his performances are, are amazing. And I don't know. I'm sometimes a bit skeptical about these players who can play back row and second row and you know whether they can do one or yeah I normally I think they have a better position I actually think he is brilliant at either blind side or um, or in second row but um, I, I probably just fractionally prefer him as a second row uh, but Etzbet will get the, the nod for me there and then in the other um, the other departments I think Scott Barrett's really really hard to look by he's been you know, such a such a, an important player for New Zealand in the past couple of seasons and again was was superb this tournament and then Snowman coming on for South Africa, particularly in the, the semi-final, just such a huge physical specimen. And, you know, you could put Etzebet and Snyman together and that would be a, um, a a suitably bruising second row. But I'm going to put, I'm going to give it to Barrett, give him the nod there and, and he gets the five shirt. Back row, there is a whole host of... Uh, uh, of amazing players here. Uh, obviously, I mentioned Ardao earlier, who's a, a blindside flank. You know, plays with six on his back, but so good over the ball, he, he could play seven. But I'll, I'll have him in there as a six. Um, Courtney Laws, I think, deserves a big mention, and he's uh, obviously retired now. But I think to come into this tournament without having had consistent international rugby over the past few years, he was incredible on the Lions tour. I think that first test will go down or should go down as an all-time great Lions performance and I think he found similar form actually at certain points particularly in the uh, uh, in the quarter and the semi-finals you know he was hugely important to England and it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of how they go about replacing him as a uh, as a player and as a leader so I think he deserves a big mention Um, I put Peter Steftertoit in there as as a six because he is a blindside flanker really um, regardless of kind of what number he plays on the uh, on the back of his shirt Best player in the final for me, just a you know an insanely huge shift, terrifying the New Zealand uh, the New Zealand backs with his line speed and hard 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 hitting, and again threat over the ball you know does does so much, and Shannon Frizzell, um, has been excellent. Just a, again, I think he's made a real difference to that New Zealand back row in recent times, uh, hard hitting, and you know he obviously got the the yellow in the in the final, which is probably a a negative mark against him, so I'm, I am going to give it to, to Peter Steph to toy and give him the give him the blind side berth. Uh, open side, uh, so as I said, I think you've, you've got to have a mention for for Sam Kane for that performance against Ireland, which is the best performance he's you know, certainly the best performance I've ever seen him play for New Zealand. Uh, honourable mention: Jack Morgan, uh, Olivon Khaleesi, uh, Bottia of New Zealand, uh, New Zealand of Fiji. Uh, oh, I'm really torn. I don't know exactly where to give this. Um, I mean, I should be giving it to Khaleesi, um, really. But I want to give it to Bottia or Morgan. Uh, there's no one here to argue with me. This would be a lot better if uh, if someone was here to make the case for someone else. Um, oh, let's give it to Bottia then, shall we? Yeah, Bottia it is. Um, right. 
And then eight, obviously Ben L mentioned already. I, I think, again, you need to mention Toby Falatao in the equation. Just probably added one of his more quiet games against Fiji, and I think it showed. But then the, the performances that he put in after that, particularly the, the game against Australia, was just, you know, was absolute vintage Toby. And it's no... It's no coincidence that he did him not playing in the quarterfinal meant that we couldn't quite get over the line. I'm not saying that's the only reason, and I still think we should have. But he's just such a massive blow to uh, um, to Wales when he's not playing. Um, but you've got to give it to Julian Sauvier. I think you know just a just such an impressive player. You know, again, you don't need me to tell you why Julian Sauvier is brilliant. Footwork over the ball, athletic prowess, ball handling skills. He just has absolutely everything. And Again, I've, I've said this about Toby a number of times in the past. Surveyor just gives you a couple of a couple of hard meters when you sometimes that's exactly what you need. And uh, yeah, he's he's just a, an absolute wonderful player, and uh, yeah, thoroughly deserves to be World Player of the Year. I think so. Um, yeah, he gets the he gets the nod there. Into the backs, um, I mean, you've got to mention Dupont. It was one of the big storylines one of the big narratives of the whole world cup when he, he picked up that injury and i'm just delighted that he didn't get any further injury in the, you know in the quarter final it would have been a, a real um and he, and he played so well in that in that quarter as well uh faf de Klerk, i thought uh he was hugely influential coming off the bench in the in the semi-final i think he should you know and, and that's why he started the final I, I think that particularly a game like that where it was tipping it down to Clerk should have started and I think that they got their selection wrong on that occasion but he made up for it when he came onto the pitch and, and made such a huge impact great decision making um, really enjoyed the uh, the Samoan uh, number nine as well I think it's uh, Talmatina Jonathan Talmatina and uh, he was uh, yeah, the, the shock of uh, peroxide blonde hair uh, real feisty bugger he was good to watch um, but Aaron Smith is the one who gets a nod for me just again you know with all the hype around DuPont, and quite rightly, I think it's kind of easy to forget what a classy operator Aaron Smith is, and we got a timely reminder of that throughout the whole of the tournament. Ten, I found one of the, the trickiest ones to, to pick, actually, because Sexton was excellent, but they couldn't get yeah they couldn't get over the line in that quarterfinal. Um, not that I'm saying that's down to him, but again, it's kind of symptomatic of the Irish problem that they had to, even though, even though there were players out on their feet they still felt that they needed Johnny Sexton on the pitch to get them over the line and that kind of reliance don't get me wrong he's a you know a brilliant player but it's just that that kind of reliance on um on Sexton at, at key points is something that obviously they're going to have to build on now he's now he's gone but you know he, he was excellent again um in uh, in those in those big games Richie Mwanga showed moments of absolute brilliance the the break to put Will Jordan in against Ireland, the break in the final, um, but also, oh, you know, you just feel like a that touchline conversion was tough. I don't think you could, it, you know, certainly wasn't a tap in, but um, the goal kicking isn't isn't his strongest suit. Whereas New Zealand have always had a gun goal kicker, really. Well, historically, have always had a gun goal kicker, whether it's Fox or Mertens or Dan Carter or whoever it is, and. Um, yeah, that feels like the area that they've kind of been missing for a while, and I don't think either either him or Barrett are necessarily in that that top one percent of kickers which New Zealand normally have. Uh, and again, they're the things that, that kind of really get you um, get you over the line in those big games. I thought Bigger was excellent for Wales. You kind of felt his um, 
felt he'd lost when he wasn't on the pitch, whether that was against Fiji or uh, you know in a game against um, Georgia. He just adds so much, um, so much calm. Uh, George Ford, I think, deserves a mention as well. So much made about Owen Farrell kind of coming back into the side. And look, I'm not Farrell's biggest fan, um, but he was immense in that uh, in that semi final. Um, well, certainly the drop goal was few elements to his game that that made things difficult. But oh, I don't know. I, I can't help but feel like if England are serious about um, advancing their um, advancing their attacking play, then they're going to have to move Owen Farrell out of ten. I think you know, and I think Ford and Smith are are better options in in that regard and I thought Ford you know just nailed his lines when he came when he uh, when he got hold of the reins against uh, against Argentina and uh, so I think he deserves a mention but I'm going to give it to Andre Pollard started the tournament not in there not in the squad came in injured and just showed why goal kicking you know for all of the the excitement and lovely running rugby that France and Ireland have played for the last few years that New Zealand play at times that actually South Africa to their credit play at times as well Big games, you need people who can slot kicks, and uh, and Andre Pollard is that man. And his you know his game management against uh, against France in the quarterfinals, those big kicks raining down, made a made a massive difference. So Pollard gets the you know to to kick Africa to two World Cups, and that get that gets the nod for me. So that was a serious one there. Um, and then on the wing, I think uh, Talea, Colby, James Lowe deserves a mention too. Um, I'm going to go for Talea. Just I, again, I've not been as excited about watching a winger play since Shane. I don't think he's just yeah because he's you know he's a he's an athletic specimen, but it's just like his footwork. He's so elusive, so hard to put down. He's been brilliant, so he gets the nod for me um, over Colby and, and Lowe. On the other wing, uh, um, Damian Pinot was excellent, really excellent. Will Jordan was excellent. Um, Mac Hansen was excellent in the early stage of the tournament. I felt like from a Welsh perspective, we're starting to see what Lewis Rees-Samet is capable of. And uh, to go back to that point about Mark Talea, you know, he is the winger who gets his ball in his hand, gets uh, the ball in his hand, so to speak, and uh, and causes trouble, goes looking for work. We've said that we'd love to see a bit more of that from Lewis Rees-Samet, and maybe we'll see that if he moves to 15 for the Six Nations. But he's just a player we've got to get on the ball because his pace terrifies teams and. Uh, and I think that could be the bit of X factor that we that we really need in the back line. Um, but I'm going to go for Will Jordan, narrowly edging out uh, Peno in that one. Centres uh, start with inside centre: Jordy Barrett, Damien Dialende. As I said, Tompkins deserves a bit of credit. Thomas Appleton, the the Portuguese captain, was great. Uh, Bundy Aki uh, was immense. Um, this is really close for me. It's between Aki and uh, and Jordy Barrett. Um, and I go for Geordie Barrett. I think he's been just integral to to how um, to how much New Zealand have kind of got their act together when they were really a side that uh, you know that kind of eighteen months ago it looked like Ian Foster was kind of dead man walking. The performances of Geordie Barrett, I think, have have completely changed their fortune. And uh, yeah, he uh, he can join his brother in the uh, in this uh, team of the tournament. Uh, outside centres. That's quite a tricky one, actually. I, I didn't feel like there was necessarily a huge amount of standouts uh, here. I thought Ring Rose was excellent in the pools. Um, but again, maybe you just wanted that little bit more in the quarterfinals. Uh, Nyatha Levu, I thought, was great for Fiji. Um, but I'm going to go for Jesse Creel. Like, I think, again, he's, you know, prior to the tournament, me and Murph were saying, uh, you know, this could be, this could be uh, a great opportunity for Kane and Moody. And uh, and Creel's got the nod, and as you know, has shown why he's just been excellent throughout the tournament. 
steady, dependable, a World Cup winning outside centre, like the, uh, the the temperament for it, and yeah, he gets the uh, he gets the nod there, and showed some nice touches in terms of his kicking game at points as well to set up the um, the try in the quarterfinals too. So yeah, he gets that one, which just leaves fullback. Um, which again I found a bit difficult actually. Um, as you said, Souza Guedes, the, the Portuguese fullback, I thought was great. I tempted to go with him. Bowden Barrett was great at points, but also again I, I thought you know when it really mattered in the final, you needed someone to gobble up those high balls, and and he struggled under them, which was which is a real shame. Uh, Ramos for France was brilliant, um, but I'm going to go for Hugo Keenan because I feel like as much as Ireland. They will look back on this as a disappointment. Um, they also played some great stuff at, at times, and I think he's just a he's just a complete class act as a as a fullback. So uh, yeah, going to go for him. So um, so yeah, that's our uh, what our that's my team of the tournament, and um, uh, yeah, uh, a tournament that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, as you said, next time around it's going to be twenty four teams. Uh, I'm intrigued to see how this goes. There's been quite a bit of talk that this tournament was a bit was a bit long and lost momentum if I'm honest I didn't really see it that way and I'd, I'd rather it was a bit longer and it meant that there was it, it, the schedule was fairer on um, on the so-called smaller teams uh, I worry about there being a 24 team tournament for a few reasons um, one is are there four more teams who are capable of competing at this level I'm not entirely sure uh, well at this stage I, I think you'd have to say there isn't uh, but then outside of that uh just the, what it means in terms of breaking at the moment at least you know you've kind of got quarterfinals and that's the best way through it there's gonna I think there's a round of 16 or something so um yeah it just I don't know it just, I just it just overcomplicates things for me and I think I, I would have kept it as 20 to be honest um I'd have, I'd have kept it as 20 and um uh if you're looking for ways of increasing revenue, I'd love to see the this shield or bulb competition uh, introduced at some point. I, mean, I don't know; uh, it won't be, but that that would be the kind of way I'd I'd like to look at it. Um, and then, yeah, as we said slightly earlier on, it's a new tournament heading uh, heading our way, um, which you'll have no doubt read about. My take on it is that it's uh, you know it should be exciting, and that. There is a need, I think, for rugby to look at more meaningful competition and stuff that that kind of that means something outside of just a test match. I think that the concept of a test match is dated. As much as I love it, you know, I think if you're trying to bring in new audiences, people kind of don't get that test matches are different to friendlies. And you could argue there's so much international rugby played now that that they're not different really. You know, when you play Australia four times in a year, can you really have um, have that as yeah, you know, being seen as a test match. So, I like the concept of it. The kind of promotion relegation thing, I understand. It kind of protects the, it protects the Six Nations type crown jewels stuff. Um, but also, in theory, gives an opportunity for people to go up. But it just it starves it starves a lot of teams. It sends out an awful message to Portugal, to Uruguay, to teams that have lit up the World Cup that get back in your shed for for four years. And I think that's a, that's a really disappointing way. Um, for the tournament to end really but I don't know only time will tell kind of how it plays out but I do hope we see more of those sides in the uh, in the four years that follow Whew, right um there you go you've had an hour out of me um so I am heading off for a lie down very very shortly and uh that all that really remains is uh is some thanks really so firstly thanks to our sponsors MSG Tours 
Uh, you'll have heard the trip that me and Dan made out to Nantes, really enjoyed it, had great fun. So a big thank you to them for sponsoring us. Um, again, if you're kind of new to the podcast, this is not a professional, well, you can tell this isn't a professional uh, um, outlet. We're just a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of fans who enjoy chatting rugby. So to have a sponsor come on board and make those things possible for us was, uh, was absolutely fantastic. And I thoroughly enjoyed that trip. Uh, we'll live long in the memory. And uh, yeah, thanks to, to Mark and the team at MSG Tours for that. Um, yeah, if you are, have any thoughts about going uh, going abroad for some rugby tours at some point, make sure you check out and yeah, have a little Google of MSG Tours and take a look there. Uh, a big thanks to my co-hosts throughout the time. Uh, so to Yestin George, to the mighty Murph, Dan Killick, James Stafford, Paul Reese. Really enjoyed chatting rugby with you guys. So thank you for. Uh, for joining me along the way and we've had some specials too you'll have um you'll have no doubt heard if you haven't go back and check out the ones with ryan herman uh, we chatted about his new book remarkable rugby grounds Look, if you if you're a nerd about grounds and you love watching rugby you'll really enjoy that book and you'll enjoy the chat that we had to so go have a little listen back to that one with ryan uh, we also spoke to rob kitson uh, around the world in 80 minutes that was really really enjoyable Again, lots of nice rugby memories in there. That one came out last week. Go and have a listen to that if you're, uh, if you're still craving some rugby content. Uh, and, of course, good friend Scott Otten, who made his uh, amazing journey, um, doing some, some incredibly tough challenges, uh, swimming, rowing, cycling, uh, huge amounts to, to make it over to Paris, and uh, all in the, um, in the name of, of trying to find a cure for motor neuron disease and colon cancer in memory of Dolly Weir and Tom Smith. So uh, if you can and you're able and you want to donate to that, then you can find the tweet on our um, on our Twitter page to their uh, try to the final fundraising efforts. Uh, so yeah, um, take a look at that. And finally, a big thanks to you for listening. Uh, it's been our best listener figure. I don't know, I keep saying this, but August, September, yeah, August, September, October have been our best listening figures. Um, that we've ever had and so uh, so yeah stick around with us we'll have loads more to chat um, to chat about and uh, yeah so hit that subscribe button hit that follow button leave us a review if you've enjoyed it um, but yeah the Rugby World Cup is over and I'm going for a sleep thanks for listening I'll be back to chat rugby with you very very soon